Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Screen Talk and welcome back, Ryan Latanzio, who we announced you made a big fuss about how he was joining uh, the podcast and then he disappears <laughs> for uh, weeks. Uh, where did you go, Ryan? Yes, I vanished. I'm happy to be back. Um, I went to Japan for just a little over two weeks, um, somewhere I'd always wanted to go. And I wanted to try and take a vacation before uh, award season really began in earnest. And the timing obviously couldn't have been better with the strike now ending. Um, I went to uh, (laughs) it gave me a new appreciation of perfect days um, in which, you know, Koji uh, Yakusho plays a toilet cleaner in Japan. Japan has these public. Did you restaurants. find any of the toilets? I did. I saw many of the toilets that he cleans in the movie. Um, and uh, there is just a wonderful um, this public hygiene mechanism there that we don't have here. And all of the toilets have bidets and heated seats, even the ones in the subways. And if you're feeling uncomfortable and need to relax, you can play a little music on your Toto toilet to like calm you down. (laughs) I'm glad you have a new appreciation of Perfect Days. We put a trailer up for that today. So are you feeling a little behind? What's going on? Are you catching up on things? Yeah. I mean, it was like being gone. It was like the longest I'd gone without watching a movie other than like, I don't, the Nancy Myers movies that I rewatched on the plane, but um, (laughs) I did watch Nyad finally on Netflix when I got back here. And that was an interesting movie that I think you liked more than me. What, what, what was your take on, on that film? I actually think that the story works really well. It's Nyad is one of those movies where I'm in awe of Annette Bening, basically. I mean, I think I think she did an extraordinary job with the makeup and the swimming and the athleticism and acting with her body. You know, I think it's a great story and I think it works as a crowd pleaser. Is it one of the great in Oscar movies of the season? No. I don't think it is. I, I think it the I think the actors will appreciate what they did with with Annette Benning. And many people are are into Jodie Foster as well. Um, what was your issue with it? Well, I mean, my issue is similar to what other people feel is that it does. Of course, I'm not wasn't super aware of all this until an L.A. Times article brought it to light. But it does issue the controversy in which she potentially fabricated some details about her swim between Cuba and Florida without a shark cage. Uh, And it does feel like a movie that's really designed to uplift and radiate a sense of triumph in a way that doesn't seem that critical of this woman, even though she really is an asshole. Like she's kind of a dick. The movie she's shows her to be an asshole. Does, I don't think the does. movie um, is, is, is making her into something else. I have a feeling that older women respond that well to this movie. It's pretty extraordinary that she had the ability to just by force of will 
And of course she had the training, but she made herself do something that was regarded as insane and impossible. And she motivated people to help her do it. Um, I don't think the filmmakers are pretty clear that whatever they put in the movie is accurate, Um, but it is a fiction obviously, but I don't think the, the, the swim occurred. The question is whether she fulfilled all the, you know, record breaking, you know, rules. Yeah. It's just, you know, in the pantheon of all the, in that betting performances, which uh, ones would you put ahead of it? I mean, we all, (laughs) yes, the grifters, wonderful. We all recognize that uh, American beauty hasn't aged super well, but I do think she really deserved it that year. I think she really is um, remarkable in that movie. And um, even being Julia, um, I think, in this later stage in her career, I mean, she's really demonstrated herself, but it, you know, I thought she, she was great in yeah. yeah, yes. She may have to settle for a, you know, a governor's award from the Oscars one day. Oh, I don't... stop, stop. <laughs> She's got plenty of mileage left. I don't think her days of, of uh, Oscar performing are, are, are over. Uh, I caught up with Rustin. Rustin is a uh, true story of uh, this guy named Bayard Rustin, who's played by Coleman Domingo. And it's basically um, a true story of the guy who actually made happen with the help of Martin Luther King and others, uh, the March on Washington, uh, the great civil rights march. Um, And uh, all the people who were against him, all the people who tried to make it not happen, and he somehow pushed it forward. And because he was gay, he was not given credit. He was not allowed to go to the president's office afterwards and take a round of applause. He was uh, sidelined. And and, and it, I love that the people who worked on this movie finally uh, dredged it up and and gave it gave this man his due. It's very moving in that way. And Coleman Domingo is very good. This is a, this is another one. It's directed by George Seawolf. It is it, it's another one where you go. This is a good movie and it it works for what it is. And yet it's not a great Oscar movie. It's another Netflix movie also. Right, right. So you don't see it really advancing that far. Coleman could. Coleman, sure. I think I he's mean, very popular. It's a you know you know who he's up against. He's up against Jeffrey Wright, who actually makes a great cameo in this movie, as of all people, Adam Clayton Powell. It's a broad thing. It's great. It's brilliant. It's fantastic. And he's up against Jeffrey Wright for American Fiction, which I still haven't seen. But now they're they're getting around to showing that in New York because it hadn't good, been playing good. any festivals other than Toronto, where it won the People's Choice Award. And one of the things that's going on is that all of the uh, people on the Foreign Language Committee, the International Committee, whatever you want to call it, uh, these are people who have from all branches of the Academy who've signed up to participate and they have to watch about 12 movies that have been assigned to them and then they can see other things as well. So this is the time of year where the clock is ticking. They've got to see all these movies in time to vote during the shortlist voting in December. And so I went to a screening at the Rodeo uh, screening room of Trace, which is the um, entry from Croatia, a beautiful art movie, very sensitive, very gorgeously wrought that I loved, Um, full of people, full of full of people seriously watching a movie like that and, you know, really taking it seriously. I don't know. It uplifted my heart. You know, there 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 are people uh, people make fun of the Academy. And the truth of the matter is, is that right now at this time of year, very few people have seen anything, you know, 
It's we we are ahead. You don't have to worry. We are ahead of them. <laughs> they're just ca- they're just starting. They're just starting to watch things. Well, next week we're going to get to see finally two major contenders, which are Napoleon, uh, which I think we're both seeing on Tuesday, and then The Color Purple, uh, which is playing as a big Academy premiere at the Samuel Goldwyn next week, and then also plays um, in Lower Manhattan on Friday in New York and. Uh, at that one, I think we probably can expect to see more talent in tow now that the strike is over. Yeah, that um, there's an event on Monday at, um, uh, what do they call it? The Linwood G. Dunn Theater. It's one of the Academy Theaters in L.A. And they're going to, um, I've been warned, I've been forewarned that it, it's an Oppenheimer event, right? So so Christopher Nolan will be there, but the, I think the actors may show up. We'll see. We'll see if if they can get Killian Murphy to schlep from Ireland. But everybody's got contingency plans. I mean, I was talking to, you know, one of the Netflix people and, you know, they were if the strike is today, we have this plan. If it's tomorrow, we have that plan. I mean, they all have they're all I've already got. I already made an appointment to interview Annette Benning, for example. Um, yeah, I mean, everyone's bags are packed pretty much and have right. been, you know. Right. Um, and so now, of course, there's going to be this bottleneck of contenders that, you know, we as journalists, we have to now deal with. But then it's also this is on all kinds of other people as well. Uh, I'm already it was like 30 within 30 minutes of the the news of the strike lifting. I had several emails already pitching me on different interviews and they are continuing into today. <laughs> I know, I know, <laughs> me too. So, so we will, we will continue, you know, um, there'll be good stuff. There'll be good stuff coming. And um, the next uh, news that I find interesting is that the New York times finally, I mean, it took them a while months to hire a new film critic to replace uh, Tony Scott, Alyssa Wilkinson from Vox. Is she someone you know? Yeah, yeah. She's been at Vox for a really long time. And, you know, she's she's in the mix here in New York. Uh, and she's in the New York Film Critics Circle, um, which now that she's in the New York Times, she will actually have to leave the New York Film Critics Circle because they do not participate in that, that critics group. So that's yeah. the caveat of her position. But, you know, it's certainly it's a plum role to fill. So I'm sure she will uh, be fine relinquishing that. <laughs> Imprimatur. Yeah, I look forward. I look forward to reading her. And then, all right, so strike resolved. We've got uh, all the all the crazy scheduling coming up. And also it, the production is ramping up again. And it's just going to be wild as all the different productions that were interrupted resume. And they're all fighting for crew and they're fighting for stages. And, you know, I'm just curious to see how this all all plays out again they've they they've all organized it so i'm sure i'm sure it's like let's get it let's get it yes good gladiator 2 is one that's resuming imminently they're already fast tracking impossible yeah Yeah. yeah, the one that got pushed back to 2025 wait 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 you saw you saw another movie you saw the marvels oh yes i saw well i saw a part of the marvels i felt (laughs) that i felt that one of us had to see it uh, since it is the week's major release um so i did attempt to see it earlier this week and uh i left yeah i left after about 45 minutes I fled the AMC Lincoln. Notoriously, I don't really see Marvel movies. People know this about me. The Black Panther films are, I think, the, the only two that I've really seen in their entirety since I think like Iron Man 2. I'm definitely, I'm in the Inyaritu and Scorsese school of thought that these films pose a sort of 
existential threat to humankind <laughs> and the marvels is no different um i'm really sorry but it's an ugly soulless movie that um it really kind of resembles like a almost like a disney channel episode i wouldn't it doesn't even feel like it's of the quality of disney plus which is that's you know it's a whole other thing i, I don't really i'm not familiar with those shows it doesn't make use of the imax format at all you know the visual effects are inconsistent which is to be expected as we know from the kind of duress that these now unionized artists are under and it's not Nia DaCosta's fault you know it's like we know she's a talented director and that these ingenue filmmakers who rise in the Marvel ranks are, are really hired hands in service of a bigger picture um but with this movie it's like it really at the, the marketing pitches it as the a first Marvels no so yeah. I really was not set up for success going into this movie but I don't really think it mattered because I had no idea what the fuck was going on and I, I people who are really familiar like including our colleague Kate Erbland with all these interconnected universes didn't know what was going on um, and I just feel like if you can't get on board the train of what the sort of like a quote unquote Disney event picture is like this like how does that entice new audiences to your new offerings yeah. you know? who yeah. are these movies for so what I'm wondering is what the hell has happened to Brie Larson? How how is because I I remember being sort of saddened in a way when I watched her in the first one in the first Marvels. You know, just just the the uh, it's a soulless kind of enterprise. You know, there isn't much for her to do. It's it's she's very um, solid but not interesting. She has really, I mean, I think she seems like she's in desperate need of a new team. I mean, she really has sold out in this way, you know, it's just really a once interesting kind of. Awesome. We loved her in short term. Yes. And I think you and I met her at the same party. I, I, remember. I adored her. I interviewed her. Yes. We Room was very good, I thought. I thought she she's was very charismatic in the Diablo Cody show. That was sort of her breakout, the United States of Terra. She's so, I mean, she's in this Apple show, Lessons in Chemistry now, which it's an Apple series. I don't know who's really seen it or if it's still on, you know, it's like those movies don't, I mean, those series don't really it hit a lot of people's radars. Uh, I, I mean, it's like, you know, she's doing Fast and Furious. She's doing car commercials. Like, I just don't, I don't, she's really got to, I don't, she's got to rest herself out of this. You know, I think Elizabeth Olsen did a really good job of sort of clawing her way out of the maws of Marvel. Um, earlier this year, she was excellent in that sort of iffy HBO Max show, Love and Death, but she did a lot of press talking about how the MCU kind of held her back from the types of projects she loved and that her career started with. And this, I would love for this to be an option for Brie Larson. <laughs> Yeah, me too. I hope she I hope she she's a very talented woman and I hope she finds her way out. Um, so you saw something on TV that you are excited about I, in a good way, which is yes, what? You know, First? Um, I left the Marvels and came home to continue watching the screeners of The Curse, which I'm obsessed with. This premieres on Showtime slash Paramount Plus with Showtime, whatever the hell it's called, <laughs> over the weekend. And this is the Benny Safdie and Nathan Fielder series starring um, Fielder and Emma Stone. Um, and they play a husband, these sort of husband and wife do-gooders. She is sort of the picture of liberal allyship. They're retrofitting homes for an underserved uh, community in New Mexico. And all of these surreal kind of subtly weird, almost Lynchian things start to happen when Fielder's character is caught doing a sort of performative act of charity by this 
small girl who does a TikTok curse on her and slowly their lives start to unravel. And Emma Stone is really just like no perfect as this sort of frittering woman who's constantly trying to radiate altruism, but is such a phony. And uh, if you are a fan, I don't. And did you watch the rehearsal at all? The Nathan Fielder show on HBO? No, I never did. Well, this is firing on similar cylinders of that sort of cringe, um, almost reality style comedy. Um, but then it's sort of in the confines of this safty aesthetic of this kind of fast paced, immediate filmmaking. Um, now, Josh Safty doesn't have anything to do with this one. And those two have kind, of, kind struck, of split up, right? They have kind of split up. And, you know, Josh is going the way of doing this Adam Sandler Netflix movie. Uh, and now Benny is, you know, focused on his own projects. This show, I don't really know who it's for, to be honest, outside of people that are, I don't know, on film Twitter or in the industry. Slightly but, deranged. Yeah, yeah. But I do feel like it's a destined cult classic. And I really, I mean, I oh, only have a I couple look forward. episodes. Yeah, I only have a couple episodes left. And I'm, you know, I'm I'm already heartbroken knowing and oh, is around well, the bend. The movie that I saw that you haven't seen is The Hunger Games, which um I went in a little skeptical because uh, that's a, a an example, a classic example of a series that started very strong and lost steam along the way. I had even forgotten how many of these movies, you know, already, you know, there was the first one and then Catching Fire and then, you know, Mocking J1 and 2. Yeah. You know. So this is called The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. And it is two and a half hours long. It is very, very dark and entertaining. And you don't know which way it's going to go. And it's the origin myth for Coriolanus Snow, the guy that was played by Donald Sutherland in you know, The President, the wicked guy from the bad guy from the other Hunger Games. And it's a young, hot British actor named Tom Blythe. Very hot, very hot. And he's good. He's a good actor. So we've got, so I, I interviewed um, Nina Jacobson, who is uh, a former uh, studio production executive who I've known for a long time, who left Disney and started her own shingle um, and stayed independent the whole time. She never hooked up with a studio to get, you know, uh, an exclusive first look deal or anything like that. She always stayed independent and she always stayed in control of her projects. And one of the ones she got early on was Hunger Games. You know, she she managed to talk Suzanne Collins into going with her and and the results were were stellar. So they waited for the book to finally get written. It, it isn't like they concocted anything. This is an adaptation of the book. So wait, check out the interview that I've done with Nina Jacobson next. And thank you, Ryan. I'll see you next week. Thank you, Anne. So I just saw the movie. Um, I schlepped to Burbank. I was I was determined to see this movie, and it it is very good. Um, now I shouldn't sound surprised. Uh, I think you do sound a little surprised. It has to do no when it's when you're involved. I expect <laughs> I expect a certain standard, but um, you know the the sequelitis stuff uh, creeps in. This is a very uh, loyal uh, adaptation. Very faithful adaptation explain how important that is to you that 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 these susan suzanne collins novels you haven't you haven't really varied from them much over the course of the series well you know since you and i you've known me for you know um almost as long as probably i've known myself professionally 
So, you know, going way back to, you know, my early mid-20s when I was at Universal, and I think that's when you and I first met. So, as you know, I spent, you know, uh, most of my career up until the point that I was fired from Disney as an executive. And I really, I was surprised to love being an executive, but I did. So then when I became a producer, you know, at first I really felt... Very lost in the first, you know, couple adjusting to being a seller instead of a buyer and not having that, particularly coming from Disney, that brand as my North Star. And so, what I found when we started to do book adaptations was that the book actually took the place of what was once for me like the Disney brand or how do I build and grow or enhance or protect the brand of my company became how do I take this book that I love and and protected and and Suzanne to her you know credit and to and you know part of why I'll always be so so loyal to her is that I mean I had done the wimpy kid um, adaptation and had worked with Jeff Kinney but really I was a very new producer at the point at which she entrusted me with these books and and from the beginning you know I had this for one enormous admiration for her as a, an author because she is very much of a thematic and character-based author. And she really does give you what you need to adapt your material. She's not a person who doesn't understand the structure of what makes a great movie or a propulsive story. She's not precious. She's more than willing to be like, well, this works in the book. It's a cinematic dead zone. What are we going to do about it? She's very engaged in making adjustments. But so for me, having her trust from the beginning, knowing that like she is, she is the North star. She is, she, we do not make any movies or try to even make any movies in the intervening years before she called and said, I have a book and I want you to read it. We weren't trying to spin off. We were, you know, because the, our North star had not given us um, a place to go, but once she did, then, you know, of course I was a little excited and nervous. Like, well, what if I read it and didn't love it, but luckily that wasn't a problem. So you got it early, right? But way before it was published, it was published yes. in twenty. So you had to have gotten started soon. We did. So we got uh, the phone call in like late twenty nineteen. We were early COVID, and then early twenty twenty, we went to read the manuscript at Jason Dravis's office. You know, we had like a sitting that you could arrange. There was one copy. It was COVID, so you were put in a little tiny room, and it was actually not that small. But you were given snacks and water, key to a bathroom, and you were in the little room and you had your sittings. And, you know, Francis and I both had like read it in two sittings each. And it was very promising that like in between sittings, like you didn't really want to leave. You were like, if I were just had this copy at home, I would just sit down and finish this book right now. How which many is always a good sign. What's the book? It's a big honker of a book. And so, we so knew you- that going in that we were dealing with what would always be you know, not a short movie, but we also knew we did not want it to be two movies. So we always knew that this longest of books would need to be compressed into one movie. So you did Mockingjay in two movies. And was that something you were happy that you did? I would say no. I mean, I put it this way. We did not know how to properly end the story in one movie. Like we really tried to think of how to do it in one movie. 517 pages, by the way. 
So there we go. In this case, you also are uh, facing um, a prequel, which means no Jennifer Lawrence. She's she's gone. Uh, so that must have added a little bit I mean, of pressure to it. And I also wanted to know um, why, uh, how you picked your writers, because Mark Michael Arndt, in my mind, is like the best writer in Hollywood. Yeah. Well, that, Arndt, that was a coup to get him. Yes. Well, he worked with us, you know, uh, on the, we worked together actually on all of them. He was the one on, I mean, but after Hunger Games, there was, and when Gary wasn't coming back, we were at this sort of pivotal moment of wanting to make Catching Fire and not having a script. And Michael Arndt was like the miracle worker who came and broke that in ridiculously short. I've never seen anybody do this. Like in three weeks, he broke and gave us a working draft for Catching Fire. And from that point on, he has been sort of part of like the family and part of the trust of, of you know, Francis, Suzanne, myself, and, and, and Michael Arndt. So he was, of course, like our first call. And we were, you know, you know, with him on that really breaking it, figuring out how to get it into one movie, figuring out what we would have to lose what we could keep and then you know we had felt like we were we were close but we hadn't really cracked the voice yet of snow and particularly really un, like being able to get inside of the you know the academy and the kind of that there's like these are characters that you know my kids are are around this age and we wanted that these kids to be able very accessible and familiar to audiences as like these people are like us you know or like our kids and so or when who we were when we were younger and so we felt like in terms of the voice of these characters uh some of the like stickier ones that were harder to unpack and get them just right uh we brought in then mike leslie as michael Arndt was getting involved in other things and we still like come back to Michael Arndt and be like, will you read this and give me your feedback? Will you see this cut and give me your feedback? So he's always like our, you know, he's part of like the brain trust or what have you. But um, Michael uh, Leslie, who was new to the franchise, you know, he really hit it off with Suzanne. He was amazing with like Jason Schwartzman and like working on what we called like black pages, which were pages that we couldn't necessarily, you know, they wouldn't go in the script, but we knew we would have to have a lot of material, you know, for um, Lucky Flickerman. And they worked together, you know, incredibly closely, you know, um, to get a lot of those great ad libs. Um, the host. He's the host of The Hunger Games and he's very funny. Oh very my God. Funny. He really made the so There's stuff on the cutting room floor that we're, we're not able to see. That's too bad. <laughs> there's some really hilarious things that did not make it because you're in this balancing act of on the one hand, like the point is that, I mean, it's interesting. He's the first ever host of The Hunger Games. So this is the games in which they're tasked with getting people to want to watch them because, you know, ought, they're having trouble as we can relate to getting butts in seats. And especially because the Hunger Games at this stage are just so brutal and upsetting. And so, um, you know, to have that first host trying to try to figure out what is the appropriate tone by capital standards, you know, Jason was a sort of a perfect person to capture that. And um, he was our first choice. We were ecstatic that he wanted to do it. 
So I was sort of interested by the jump that occurs at the beginning, which is sort of tricky, where you start three years before the first games, you skip the first games. You don't have, you don't take the opportunity to actually give us the first games. And you, you're 10 years, you want snow to be a, 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 a almost grown up. A, what is he, 17, 18? Yeah, I was 18, gradu- yeah. graduating from high school. Well, what we felt like was we referenced the dark days in the other movies. We reference we reference the war in the books and movies. You know, you know that that these games were a consequence or an outcome or punishment, as they're described, for the war. Um, and so we thought it was really important, especially in following Snow. And also, the book is very much Snow's point of view. So you have to be with him. Um, you know, we we very rarely break his point of view and do so like with very like sort of certain conditions in which we'll let ourselves break point of view from him. But in this case, we wanted to show, you know, that these are both he and, you know, his cousin Tigress, Andrew Schaefer's character. You know, these are kids raised in war that the capital, we want to show the capital in this destroyed state prior to this rebuilding that is what we see when we come back to him um, and to know that like the consequences, the trauma of war is still sort of hanging over the capital. It's like literally and figuratively scarred as are its inhabitants by the time you get to the movie and the 10th games. Um, and yet you're far enough away that people are wanting to forget and not wanting to watch the games and not able to like find that to be a satisfying um, conclusion um, when people after war tend to want to forget. So his character is the pivot of, of, you know, pivotal character, the one you're following. And it's his origin myth, if you like. It's it's how how the character eventually played by Donald Sutherland becomes that character, President President Coriolanus Snow. It's fascinating, actually, because you're 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 engaged with him and you you like him and you're rooting for him. And then he he makes for certain shifts that that you understand as as he's going forward. It's a tr- it's dark. It's dark. It is. And it's I mean, I you know, I think Suzanne, I think, has an incredible ability to find the rhyme in history to, you know, the way that present moment, our present moment and our kind of evolution culturally rhymes with historical moments. And so I think that certainly, you know, the first books, she was really interested in exploring just war theory. Can war ever be just? What are the consequences of violence? And is there ever uh, a time when war is or can be just, and even when it is, or if it is, what are the wh- where does that leave you? And certainly, that was Katniss's story, and among other things, but always about as well defiance and resistance and people's relationship to the state. And then to take this story, which is actually, you know, when our first conversations, she was like, "So, how fresh are you on your Enlightenment thinkers?" Um, you know, and you're like, oh, you know, fresh as a daisy, of course, who isn't? So of course there was like a lot of frantic refreshing on those enlightenment thinkers, but, um, you know, they, to explore how much through Coriolanus now, how much the way that we feel about each other and our fellow human informs the government that we believe 
that we need or that we crave um, and how much, you know, the person is political. And that if you believe as say, you know, the Dr. Gall, the Viola Davis character does, that the arena is in fact humanity, you know, uh, unveiled. This is actually what, who we are. This is, the mask is down. The arena is actually human nature at its core. And um, if you do not have the state, the heavy hand of the state to intervene, humans are, will only destroy and devour each other. And if you believe, and you can certainly see how war and trauma and fear give rise to those beliefs. Um, and then if you are a person who feels that fundamentally people are good, you know, the Sejanus character who believes like the role of the state is to protect the, its citizens, regardless of where they're from, district or capital, that the role of government is to protect individual rights and freedoms and liberties because left to their own devices, people will do good things with those things as long as they are able. And um, and then there are people who sort of fall maybe in less extreme places in terms of their uh, values or their politics. But this, I love that, the you know, we're never talking about politics. However, we're actually very much talking about how our doubts, our skepticism about each other, our fear of each other, um, the, the greater, the more polarized we are, the more alluring authoritarianism becomes. And that seems pretty timely. And it, it, you know, it is indeed. Although I will say it's an entertaining <laughs> movie. And part of how you pull that off is uh, you and Francis Lawrence, who's back, obviously, uh, have have found a great cast. So so who is this guy who's playing Coriolanus Snow? I am well, not really did, with did him. Come down. Well, yes. Uh, you know, the fun and it's it's really fun to watch this movie with audiences, because what you realize is on the one hand, as I did in the book, when you're watching the movie, you know he's going to go bad. You know he's going to break bad. But you have this irrational desire throughout that maybe somehow he's going to break good, even though you know. <laughs> and then, even though you keep kind of rooting for something you know will never happen, when we watched audiences watch him transform, and you see that transformation in a close-up, you know, in a scene that it's just all performance. Tom is such a powerful actor. That moment with an audience, they loved watching the moment that really this boy becomes the snow of the future movies and that and really to be able to pull that off to be able as you say to root for him during the story to keep hoping somehow that he'll make another choice than the one you know he does um took you know extraordinary chops because it's it's much easier to play a hero right or to play a villain than to play someone who's sort of moving around in between. So his name is exactly. Tom Blythe. Is he British? Is he American? Yes, Tom Blythe is British, Juilliard uh, graduate. Um, we did not know really who he was. I'd seen posters for Billy the Kid. Um, and actually, the funny thing was that when I saw his audition and he knocked our socks off in his audition, he's such a, he's just, he's a very, he has an enormous amount of restraint and and technique. And so he he just, all of his auditions were, 
just you kept finding other things and seeing other things in the scene when he performed it than you had seen any in anybody else's performance. And when he played opposite, you know, his scene partner, he would really um, shift and super focused on kind of finding the scene with the scene partner, not just like, as is often the case with auditions, like I've rehearsed my way that I'm going to do this and I'm just going to keep doing it. Well, some <laughs> of us do know Rachel Zegler from, from West Side Story. What was going on with her uh, prevaricating about wanting to take the role? So she was the first person we met. Uh, Frances met her in London. She was, you know, at that moment, maybe prepping her in early production on Snow White. She had a huge, long COVID protocol, lonely, visual effects heavy production ahead of her. And they met for four hours. She was a huge fan of the franchise. She'd already read the book. She was a huge fan. And yet she was just like, I would love to, but I just don't know that I can go from this production straight into another production in Germany, like literally with no break in between. And we understood that, like, you know, and so we you needed her to sing. You needed her to be able to sing. Right. Yes, exactly. And you needed a star who could sing. And then you have to find some. And again, Lucy's also very complicated characters. Really important to Suzanne that she is not the songbird and he is the snake. It is not about like allowing these sort of like easy polarities to drive character and story. They are both songbirds. They're both snakes. They're both performers. They're both, they connect through performance. But for Lucy, you have to have this character who you want to wonder, like, is she just good at playing a crowd? Is she playing him? Or is there something real there? The whole real, not real thing runs through this movie was, as it does through the others, but in a different way. We kept struggling to cast Sejanus because of all of the characters from the book to the script, he was the one that we had to rewrite the most so that he wouldn't feel earnest and you would really buy this sort of friendship and we had a lot of really bad Sejanus auditions and then <laughs> in came Josh Rivera who gives this incredible audition after I went completely flipped for him I am informed that he actually happens to be her Rachel Zegler's boyfriend which I know sense of so I was like well that's interesting so then you know we cast them and then sure enough, we get a phone call from Rachel's agent saying, like, is it too late for you to reconsider her? Can she still read? So how did you cope with the question of the length? What, what, where did you wind up on that? So how long is it? Is it two hours and a half? Yeah, it actually is, you know, under without credits, it's actually under two and a half. You know, Francis is very, very disciplined. He is not um one of the directors who's holding on to everything if anything which i'm always like wanting to make it shorter and even i there's a scene that we cut that i really liked and that i kept wanting to even then finally even i had to give up on some of the things that i wanted to hold on to but you know keeping the pace the structure of it is tricky because it's different than the other movies the other movies the third act is the games and you have a lot of time to get to know the tributes and so the in the second act and so in this case you have you know a first act which is really about you know the mentors and the men the, the advent of mentoring and you know the meeting of the tributes and and their meeting of you know 
Corey Alanis and, and Lucy Gray. And then the second act is the games. And then the third act is like an unexpected turn that happens in the story that I did not see coming at all when I read the book. I'm really curious. Whether- you have no idea where it's going. Yeah. None. Yeah. Is there a romance brewing or not? Or right. where is it going to be? Yeah. And so, but structurally getting that third act to like have the momentum going into the third act and keep the momentum going in the third act, but also making sure you have enough time for all of these sort of twists and turns and these relationships and complications between these characters um, and the strings being pulled back in the Capitol to get all of that to play. So we took out probably the most out of the third act. We also compressed things in the first act from the book because there was more like back and forth thing, you know, from school to the zoo where they hold the, tri- the, the, the tributes and back and forth and you can't really back and forth in it back and forth it that much <laughs> on, on screen. The book did well, right? It was a successful book. So yes, the book is done well. Still all those fans, right? And, who are gonna turn it's been up. super exciting to see, you know, the once when Lionsgate put the originals on Netflix, we both like in, you know, found a whole lot, a new generation of fans who had not. Ooh, that's up. good. That's and good. And so we had like, And what was so exciting and what I love about how engaged younger audiences are is that you start to see like book talk and there's such a rich, active culture of like creating content around books and movies and adaptations online now, you know, on TikTok, especially, but on Instagram, sorry, you know, it's exciting to see how much people make it their own. So we really started to see that then and from putting the movies on Netflix and also seeing how much it still meant to the people who had grown up with it and the nostalgia that people had for it. And the number of people who have told me like what it meant to them to grow up with the movies and what, how happy they are, like get to go back to this dystopic world, which is kind of interesting. Um, so I do feel very optimistic about that. And yes, it is hard to make. It's that. a new world, isn't it? It is. It's a, it's a new world out there. In, and yet I also feel like it's a really cinematic experience and of the reasons that you go to a theater. I just think that it feels like a proper movie, um, which I can't a return say. to a familiar world. And yet it's very different. So you have the, the right. I think you have the right combination of those elements that you need to, to bring people back. I think you could I hope so. You could do well. So, so what's going on with the the sequel um, to Crazy Rich Asians? What's what's the status of that? Well, you know, I would say, as you know, kind of relating to the Hunger Games too. Francis and I, from the get, were like, if we can't crack the script, we don't want to do it. Like, at, we don't don't start prep, don't start like, don't turn the clock on even. Because of course, Lionsgate, you know, it's a big They property. gave you a date. I noticed this, actually. They announced yeah, they, the date and you made the date that they announced. But we wouldn't, but we would not let them turn the faucet on until we felt confident about our script. Because there's nothing worse than chasing a release date when you don't have your script figured out. So on Crazy Rich Asians, I'm, we are dying to make a sequel. It's incredibly hard to make a sequel to a romantic comedy, for one because you have resolved the primary conflict. This is true. <laughs> and yes, we have three books, but we also like took the kind of key emotional dynamic from the first movie that wasn't fully resolved in the second book, but we resolved it at least the beginning of a resolution in the love triangle between, or the triangle between her, you know, Rachel, Nick, and Eleanor, the mom, 
mom gives blessing. So now really, how do you create drama and conflict for them in going forward? And so we've had multiple drafts, multiple tries, multiple versions, and we're continuing to work. We had, you know, we have, it's just, we would rather do, make no movie than make a disappointing movie that lets people down. If, if you love something, there's nothing worse than having the people who made the thing you love screw up your memory of it by making something mediocre. So we're just doing our sell no one before it's time, even though it's really irritating to us, to audiences and fans and, and to Warners. That's um, exciting. So, so you'll get back to exciting. work eventually. Uh, hopefully, yes. what are you hearing about the strike? Is it really going to be resolved? I'm, I am hearing they're close. Yeah. The fact that they're not bashing each other suggests that maybe they are, you know. Um, I think people really desperately need to get back to work. Yeah, Desperate. I'm hoping that the AI part gets fixed because they've got to fix that for real. And maybe it sounds like they're going for successful sharing as opposed to everybody sharing. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I do. I mean, listen, I, I believe that decoupling performance from compensation is perhaps one of the stupidest business strategies imaginable for all involved. Like inherently, if you make something that people love and you've made it for an intelligent price and it succeeds, you should make more money than if you've made <laughs> something bad that costs too much money. Like there has to be like an alignment of interests and you want to have your filmmaker and your storyteller be like most of us want a lot of people to see the things that we've made. That's our hope, you know? And so you want to incentivize that the more people who want to see this, or if you're making something that you know isn't for everybody, the smarter you were able to make it, the better, the, the more clever you were in your production approach, that you still made money. Like, but we even think these should these, still matter. Exactly. We still see these these big budget sequels uh, that cost way too much money, not making their money back in the last yes. year or so. Indiana. And Francis and I were also really adamant about that too, which is that we do not want just because we were picking up, you know, we don't want cost what the later movies, once you're really paying actors in success, obviously cost more money than this movie, as it should. So we were quite adamant. We're not just going to pick up where we left off. We're going to get back to where, you know, what we thought, where your we thought cast, we Your cast wasn't expensive in this case. No, no. I mean, I'm, we paid our incredible adult actors as, you know, we always have, um, but they don't have to work that many days, right? Like it's not, so you can get amazing cast and pay them a very respectable sum, but you're not having to pay them for the run of the picture. You can shoot them out. So am I missing anything else that you've got on your plate? Anything uh, exciting? Um, let's see. Well, we owe Say Nothing, which has been still shooting in the UK because it is um, not a SAG show. So we have been shooting Say Nothing, um, you know, the adaptation of Patrick Braddon Keefe's book, which is a limited series for FX. I'm very excited about that. It's, you know, Josh Zetimer is the showrunner, you know, it's an amazing book and really compelling young actors playing the roles. You know, we're also working on, you know, um, a season of American Love Story, you know, to do another spinoff from the American crime story. Um, and then we're really, you know, actively looking both on the feature side and the TV side. You know, we still, I feel like 
as hard as it is out there, there's also very clearly like audiences want to fall in love and be energized as much as we do. So it's on us to just keep looking and just be really demanding about whether it's worthy or not and not waste time if it isn't. On that note, I'm going to say thank you, Nina. Thank you very much for coming uh, on Screen Talk and uh, have your have a good trip to London. I hope it all goes well. And, thank you. Uh, and we'll have you back. Uh, all right, thanks. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.